This is episode 125 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing Women's Camp 2015, One Courageous Community with Carrie Patterson. This is session two, Saturday morning. I slept great after being camping all week and sleeping with my kids and I'm like, my husband texted me, how are you sleeping? They're still camping in their trailer. I'm like, I'm doing great. <laughs> I'm sleeping great. Oh, it's so nice to be, have some space. So good morning. Good morning. Did you guys read John 14 to 17? Put you all on the spot. Yeah. A few of you, awesome. Good for you. Get the most out of your weekend. So we have a really fun message this morning. It's uh, last night we talked about the picture of community. And uh, this morning, just a little fun good morning message on the problem of community. All right? So, um, yeah, we're just going to go ahead and get this out of the way because we kind of have to do this. And so uh, we're going to look at the problem of community. Jesus prays for us. Right? In John 17, that's where we ended last night. Jesus prays that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And then he goes to the cross, as you know, and he suffers in our place. And he dies for our sin, and he conquers sin and death. And then he rises from the dead, and he ascends into heaven. And then it's like, now what? Right? Now it's like go time, right? It's time for us to do this. And he sends the Holy Spirit. But interestingly enough, basically the entire rest of the Bible is just instructions on how to make that happen, right? He prays that we would be one. And then we tell because we still have more scriptures, right? We have letters and we have things basically trying to help us do that, right? Because we know, if we're honest, that that doesn't always happen. Right? We, we need to look no further than um, the nearest marriage, probably our own, to see that oneness breaks down. Right? Yes. Somebody else, you're like, oh, no, mine's perfect. Okay, fine. You can leave because you're done. <laughs> um, or the nearest church, right? Or even your body to see that oneness breaks down, right? Sometimes it just doesn't do what it's supposed to be doing working together, Right? It breaks down, and we see this very quickly. If you take oneness, right? If you just write out the word oneness and you add one little bump, you've got one mess. Okay? Right? Like oneness quickly. And I notice this in my life. I can go from oneness to one mess with one little bump, right? It does not take much. I'll just go ahead and be the first to confess this. It does not take much to get me from oneness to one mess. Even this week, sharing about this relationship and this challenge, even this week while we were camping and I'm praising God and I'm like, this is so amazing, all that God has done. And I was just telling my husband how just it's incredible to see this miraculous work of unity and oneness that God has done. And then there was just this one little comment that night that was made. And it is crazy, I will tell you, how one little comment and my heart went all the way back to that same hurt. Uh, Shara in her, in her excellent um, workshop talks about the poison that's attached to those wounds. All the way back, instantly, I was back in that poison. That's the way I always felt. That's the thing it always was. It's that same thing again. Here it goes. <laughs> right? And I'm, I mean, it's, it's all fine on the outside. And inside, I can feel my heart rate quicken. All of a sudden, just like that. And the praise is that I ran into my little tent trailer <laughs> and I got with the Lord and praised him out loud and sang songs to him and said, no, I will not give opportunity to the devil. This is silly. This is shallow, right? This is trivial. I will admit that. But I need you to change my heart. I will not let that door creak open because my mind will really run with it, right? Oh, that's right, same old thing. But it is amazing, it is astonishing to me how we can go from oneness to one mess in a blink of an eye. Because we all have those places, right? We all have those places we can go 
from one courageous community to one massive mess very quickly, right? Um, Jeff and I, I know to some of you, uh, we're just babies, but um, we've been married 12 years and we've been working in some sort of ministry capacity for about 15. And um, we've, been work- we've worked with five different churches um, in those years and some healthier than others. But I would definitely say that in our experience, um, oneness is tough. We've worked in different denominations. We've worked in different uh, states. We've worked in different uh, leadership models, all sorts of very different settings. Oneness is very, very difficult. And if I were a cynical person, I'm not, but if I were a cynical person, I would say it is nearly impossible. Very, very challenging to walk in oneness. So what is the problem? Okay, what is the problem? Those of you who are good girls and go to Sunday school, you know the right answer, right? You're like, sin, right? We know the answer. We're like, I know the answer. If it's a good answer, it's Jesus. And if it's a bad answer, it's sin. Right? That's the answer, right? Always. You know that. You're like, I know. I know how to do this. Sin. Okay, but how exactly, right? I don't know about you. I feel sometimes when I have really abstract things, like sin is kind of abstract to me. What ex- how exactly does that play into ruining oneness? How can I kind of get a handle on that? And thankfully, that is exactly what the New Testament writers do for us. And that's exactly what Paul does for us in Ephesians 4. And that's where we're going to be camping at the start of our time this morning is Ephesians 4. So if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to open that up. It's in the prison epistles, and you can keep track of the prison epistles um, in the order by remembering, go eat popcorn. Okay, go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Okay, that's so you can remember them. So Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is helping us understand why if Jesus prayed for us to be one, what's the problem? Okay, he's gonna tell us very specifically in Ephesians chapter four. And he starts in verse one, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. I love that too, by the way. I think Paul, whenever he's, um, I notice this in Philippians too, when he's dealing with issues of kind of like unity and pettiness, he's like, um, just to remind you, I'm in prison just perspective, okay? I'm just going to toss that out there. I think it's very interesting. He's like, um, just so you know, I'm in chains. Can you get along? Thanks. Okay. So he's like, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is the calling to which we have been called? We learned last night, oneness. That is what Jesus prayed for us. Oneness so that the world may believe that you sent me. That is the calling. We have a lot of different things. We're highlighting the different missions. I think that's incredible. I love it. But the overarching mission that we are called to is oneness for the glory of God and the salvation of the world. That is what we are called. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling you which we have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience. That's how oneness is achieved. Bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I love him using that word eager. It's like, I am so eager to do whatever I can to keep unity, right? Some of us are eager for drama. I don't know what it is, but there's just something that just like kind of just gets us excited when there's something to report about someone else and there's just something to stir up and it's kind of exciting. He says, be eager for peace. Be eager to do whatever you can to bring peace, to bring peace among friends, to not separate, not, not repeat a matter because that separates friends. Do whatever you can to be eager for peace, to maintain the unity of the spirit because, and then he says, there is one, here it is again, there is one body and one spirit just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Right, he is repeating what our Savior prayed for us. There is one, remember, oneness. There is one body of Christ. It looks really different in different parts of the world, in different groups, in different denominations, but there is one body of Christ. 
one God and Father over all. There is one baptism, there is one God, and he's driving home again and again and again the oneness that Jesus prayed for for us. And then he goes on to talk a little bit about the various spiritual gifts, which is very similar to what we looked at last night in 1 Corinthians 12. And so whenever he's talking about oneness, it's interesting, usually he goes into talking about the different gifts and diversity. His point being, again, it is the different gifts together that make us one. The various gifts, the diversity, the differences coming together to make us one. Why? Jump to verse 12. Why do we have all these varying gifts, all these different personalities, all these different spiritual gifts? Why? What is the purpose for the sake of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry? Again, the purpose. The purpose is that we would do the work that Jesus called us to do. Remember, the handing over of the furthering of the kingdom that we looked at last night in John 17 that handing over is done, given to us for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Right? You guys know this, right? The gifts and the talents and the spiritual gifts, the things that we have been given, are not so that we can be like, oh, look at me. Right? It's for the sake of serving each other. Everything that we have been given is for the purpose of serving the body of Christ. And if I am using it, I, maybe this goes without saying, if I am using it for my own pride, for my own glory, for my own vanity, I am not serving the body of Christ. I am destroying it. To serve the body of Christ. To be mature. He's saying so that you would no longer be immature, he goes in verse 13, but that we would come to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It is a beautiful thing to have childlike faith, but it is not beautiful to be childish, right? And sometimes, and I will be the first to, to say that, sometimes the differences and the little petty things that we allow to come in our way, they are childish, right? Help us. God to grow up, right? Help us spiritually to grow up so that, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body strengthened so that the body can reach the world. So the body can build itself up in love, right? That is the point. The body of Christ strengthened up that it would work properly. And that's the, the phrase that I want us to focus on just for a moment this morning is that in verse 16 where he says, um, when it is equipped, when each part is working properly, when each part is working properly, because there is the problem, right? Big shocker, I know, right? We don't work properly. That's the problem, right? We individually, members of the body, don't work properly. Individual members of this body don't work properly. What happens in your body when it's members, you know, you've got a twitch here and things going on. And um, my dear, dear mom um, has Parkinson's. She's had it for about 12 years. And we're praying for her, praying every single day over her, praying God would heal her. And, um, but it's, it's so sad. It's so, I'm just, blah, to see the body not working properly. And you see this part doing something wrong and the balance being off and then the leg gets broken and then the hands are gnarled like this and then, and it's just, it's like, where do you even start? It's not working properly. And so this part that doesn't work affects this part that doesn't work and then that affects this part that doesn't work and next thing you know, it just, it just goes on and on and on, right? And that is what happens in the body of Christ when one little part gets off, then that part doesn't work right and then that part doesn't work right and the next thing you know, we're just crippled crippled. We're not functioning properly. 
And God has called us. He's given us our physical bodies as a picture of how we are supposed to work together properly. We don't work properly. Now, if you are not a follower of Christ, that's kind of where the story ends, right? Paul says, um, after that he says, we would no longer walk as the Gentiles, those are unbelievers, representing unbelievers, in the futility of their minds. He says they're alienated from the life of God, darkened in their understanding because of hardness of hearts, right? The advice for this, for this, these people right here is to repent and turn to Christ, right? Those who do not have the spirit of God, who do not follow Jesus, are darkened in, their, in the futility of their minds. They are alienated. They are not connected to the body. We only, through Christ, can become connected to his body, quite obviously, right? But that is not for us. Those of us who have called on the name of Jesus, those of us who have followed and are following him, verse 20 says, that is not the way you learned Christ. He's talking to believers. That is not the way you learned Christ. The way you learned Christ, Paul says in verse 22, is to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on your new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, we'll talk a little bit more tonight about putting off and putting on. Also, in Shara's uh, workshop, she has an excellent, um, goes through that in an excellent way through Colossians 3, of the putting off and the putting on. But I want you to notice that he says those who do not follow Christ, earlier in that passage, he says that they, they walk in the futility of their minds. And then when he talks about those who do follow Christ, he says that they are being renewed in the spirit of their minds. So quite simply, the problem is that we have a problem with our minds. That is where the problem lies, with our oneness, in our minds. The transformation from old life to new life is a transformation from a futile mind to a renewed mind. It is a new mind. In order to be one, we desperately need a renewed mind. Right? We see this also in uh, Romans 12, which we're going to focus more on tonight in Romans 12. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, right? But be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. That is where the new life takes place. That is where we are renewed, is in our minds. Then we will know God's good and perfect will. Then we will know oneness. Then we will know how to love one another in courageous community by renewed minds. We see this throughout the New Testament, that the transformation process is specifically a transformation of our minds. In Matthew 6, 16, excuse me, Matthew 16, 23, when Jesus is rebuking Peter, he says specifically, he says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We must have our minds set on the things of God. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Jesus says, when he's summing up all the law and the prophets, right? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. A transformation taking place, <coughs> excuse me, in our minds. And then in Romans 8, when Paul is talking about the old self and the new self, Paul says in, in Romans 8, he says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Right? It is in our minds. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. That is the end of setting our minds on the things of the flesh. Right? My husband always says in all the different, um, you know, the warnings and all of these things that seem like really hard rules, he's always saying, you're not in trouble, you're in danger. And when he has to confront someone or rebuke someone, as a pastor that happens, he sits down with people and says, you're not in trouble, you're in danger. He's telling us these things because the end of a life with our minds set on the flesh is death. Spiritual death, emotional death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. 
setting our mind on the spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Right? When we set our mind on the things of the flesh, we let that door just crack a little bit open. And the flesh comes in. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Let there be no divisions. Be united in your mind again. Colossians 3.2, Paul says, set your minds on things above, not things on this earth. The transformation is in our minds. In 1 Peter 3.8, the apostle Peter writes, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. This transformation into a life of oneness is a transformation of our mind. We need Christ to change our minds. I don't know if you've ever said that about someone even. You might say the phrase, I changed my mind about her. Right? Sometimes you maybe know a little bit about someone or you see someone or you hear something about someone and you kind of make up your mind. Can we just be so honest as to say that? We kind of make up our mind about that person. And then maybe you get to know them a little bit more. Right? I've had this happen to me many times. Get to know them a little bit more then you realize... I changed my mind about that person, right? Now that I know them, we have to change our mind about each other and change our mind about ourselves. The transformation is the asking God by his Holy Spirit to change our minds, to transform our minds. We see this also very clearly in Philippians 2, and that's where we're going to camp for the last little bit of our time. If you just turn, mine is just one page, turning over in your Bibles to the very next prison epistle, in Philippians, Paul uh, talks about this change of mind also, specifically. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, but just to give you a little bit of context, we're going to back up and, and, and talk a little bit about chapter 1, just for a minute. He says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Almost the exact same words that we read in Ephesians 4. Right? The same exact thing. You see this repeated over and over and over. Let your manner of life be worthy of the calling. Be worthy of the gospel. Remember why we're here. Your manner of life worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come to you or am absent, I may hear that you are, here's what it means to have a life worthy of the gospel, that you are standing firm in one spirit. With, here it is again, one mind, with one mind, striving side by side, facing the same direction, right? Striving side by side. What for? For the faith of the gospel. Reminding us of our calling again. Reminding us of our purpose again. This is what we are to be doing for the faith of the gospel. By being one spirit in one mind, striving side by side. Now, sadly... The church, especially the American church, has become famous for striving face-to-face. -face. We've become famous for striving with each other, sadly. We have become famous for striving over carpet colors, right? <laughs> whatever, whatever it is, there's a million different things that come up in a church. I get it, right? We're in the trenches of it with you that come up that we have become famous at striving face-to-face rather than striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And what I have noticed is that when we are side by side and we have our, our purpose, our focus fixed, there's a lot fewer issues between us, right? It's amazing how many things just kind of fall to the side when we're really striving toward the faith of the gospel. It's when we forget our focus that we have to like come up with other things to fight about. Right? Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The next passage tells us what this mind, he says, with one mind, 
The next passage in Philippians 2, we're going to jump down to Philippians 2, verse 1, tells us what this mind is like. And he begins in chapter 2. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, let's pause there for a minute because Paul is saying if, right? But it's not as if he's not sure. It's not as if he's like, well, if there's any love or if there's any consolation, right? This if that he's using expresses certainty, right? So we could read this since. Since there are these things, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from his love, since there is participation, is that word koinonia, which we use a lot for fellowship, participation in the spirit, since there are these things, affection and sympathy, it is as if He is giving us an airtight argument that there is no excuse. It's as if I handed uh, Amber, I I gave her, let's say a thousand bucks. Thousand, would that be good? Okay. It's as if I gave her a thousand bucks cash, right? And she took it and she put it in her pocket. And then I said, if you have any money, may I please borrow a dollar? And she's like, uh, like, I know you have money, right? That's just a silly example, but it's like, I know that your pockets are stuffed full of cash, so can you please give me a buck, right? It's as if he's saying, I know that your hearts and your spirits are stuffed, jam full of all the stuff that you need to love each other, right? I know that your bank is stuffed full of affection and sympathy and participation in the spirit and love and comfort and everything you would possibly need in order to make this work, okay? So you just need to use a little tiny bit of it to love each other. Everything that we need has been given to us in Christ. So because you have all these things, he's saying, verse two, complete my joy By being of the same mind, there it is again, the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and here it is again, of one mind. Do you think he's making a point, right? Over and over and over we see this, Paul saying, be of one mind. It is in our minds, no longer in the futility of our minds, but with renewed minds and one mind. Now, all of these things that he lists out, same mind, same love, full accord, one mind, what is this all summed up in one word? Unity, right? Really, it's just unity would be um, all of this summed up in one word. The perfect oneness, Jesus uses that phrase, perfect oneness, that Jesus prayed for us in John 17 can be summed up in the word unity. And really the word community, we're talking about courageous community. Community just really means common unity, right? Community just comes from common unity. So in order for us to have courageous community, we must have common unity, right? So what is Unity. We saw last night, clearly when we looked at the pictures of um, male and female together in oneness, different parts of the body in oneness, we know that unity is not uniformity, right? Unity is not all of us looking the same, talking the same, right? Unity, I would even say uniformity is the counterfeit of unity, right? When we don't want to do the hard work of unity, we just settle for uniformity because, you know, it's a lot easier to just join a clique with people just like me than it is to reach out and have unity with you even though we're really different. Right? Uniformity is the counterfeit of unity because unity is a lot harder. It is way easier to just hang out with people just like me. Right? They're constantly confirming my own choices. It's great, right? I'm always right. It's when we surround ourselves with people who are different, who challenge us, who see things differently than we do, who have way different backgrounds than we do, who even have a few different beliefs, right? There are a few things that we want to, right? There's a few hills that we'll die on. There's a few things that we would take a bullet for. 
But there's a lot of things that we can let go for the sake of unity, not uniformity. It is in the diversity that there is unity. The problem is not our differences, right? The problem is our mind, our attitude toward those who have those differences. So unity is not uniformity. It is not our differences, but our wrong mind, our wrong thinking. So what is this wrong mind? What is this wrong thinking, if you will, that is the problem? Paul goes on to tell us specifically in verse 3. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Rivalry or conceit. This is just the tip of the iceberg, right, of our wrong thinking. Rivalry or conceit. Now what is rivalry? Rivalry is competition, right? Competition. How many of you are you willing to, willing to raise your hand are competitive by nature? Oh, I, love, I love it. Way to, way to be honest. I'm so proud of you. Some of you are like, I just can't wait for the princess dash because I'm going to put all of you down, right? No, that's great. And, that, and I, I want to make sure I'm clarifying. There's, yeah, this kind of competition, you know the difference, right? You know that friendly, you know, playing a game to have fun and connect with one another versus the competition that is deadly, right? Competition um, that is nowhere, nowhere commended in Scripture. Right? My husband always says, the only place I can find competition in, in Scripture is where it says, outdo one another in showing honor. It's the only place I can find competition in the Scriptures. Rivalry is competition. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, pride is essentially competitive is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else was equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. This is a serious warning for us. Love and competition are mutually exclusive. You cannot love someone and compete with them at the same time because love seeks not its own. Love and competition are mutually exclusive. And the only way to quit competing is to quit comparing. To quit sizing ourselves up by how we measure against someone else. And we do this, right? Can we just be so honest that This is our default as women, right? We compare our children. We compare our homes. We compare our husbands. We compare our ministries. We compare our bodies. We compare our clothes. We compare our incomes, right? It's just our default, right? Competition. And Paul says instead, verse 3, count others more significant than yourselves. I love that he uses the word count, right? It's almost as if he's saying, I know you're keeping score. Okay, I know that your tendency is to keep score. So while you're at it, just go ahead and count everyone else better than yourself. Okay, go ahead and just list it all out if you want, but just put yourself at the bottom. Okay, just go ahead and put yourself there if you're going to keep score. Decide once and for all that you will quit the race. That you will quit the competition and esteem others better than yourself. You cannot lose a race you aren't running. You cannot humiliate the person who humbles himself. It's so much safer to just humble ourselves, right? A.W. Tozer says this. He says, think for yourself whether much of your sorrow has not arisen from someone speaking slightingly of you. As long as you set yourself up as a little god to which you must be loyal, there will be those who will delight to offer an affront to your idol. How then can you hope to have inward peace, the heart's fierce effort to protect itself from every slight, to shield its touchy honor from bad opinion of friend and enemy, will never let the mind have rest. Continue this fight over the years and the burden will become intolerable. Yet we are carrying this burden continually, challenging every word spoken against us, cringing under every criticism, smarting under every fancied slight, Tossing sleepless if another is preferred before us. 
Self is the heaviest load to bear. Some of us are exhausted, not because we have poured our lives out for the gospel, but we are exhausted because we are carrying ourselves. Self is the most exhausting burden to bear. When we have to look through every circumstance and how we measure up with it or how it affects us or how it is exhausting. Self is the heaviest burden to bear. Freedom from this is joy. Andrew Murray says in his wonderful little tiny book, Humility, he says, true humility comes when, in light of God, we have seen ourselves to be nothing and have consented to part with and cast away self to let God be all. The soul that has done this no longer compares itself with others. It has forever given up every thought of self in God's presence. The humble person feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praised and himself forgotten. And I would add, he is freed from himself. This is why I would say humility is the most freeing quality of life. The most freeing quality of life. In fact, it is not just one virtue along with the others. Humility is the virtue out of which all the other virtues grow. You cannot love without humility. You cannot be faithful without humility. We cannot be gentle without humility. We cannot be patient without humility. Humility is the soil, if you will, out of which all other fruit grows. Humility is the only path to unity, to love. It is the only way to save a marriage. It's the only way to be a friend. It's the only way to further the gospel is through humility. It's the only path to courageous community. Now, how do we get there? Right? How do we? The, the biggest catch-22 there ever was was, how do I get humble? Right? Because the more you focus on being humble, the more you're not. Right? It's like, how do I get humble? Like, oh, do I, like, slump my shoulders? Is that it? Or do I just, like, you know, whatever? Do I get real quiet? Like, is that how I be humble? Like, what does it mean to be humble? How do I grow in humility? Verse 4 tells us, because sometimes we can get stuck, right? We can think, okay, I need to be humble, and so I need to think of other people as better than me. So I'm like, okay, they're better than me, they're better than me, I'm bad, they're good, but, right? And so pretty soon, we're not conceited, but we're depressed, right? We're like, okay, this is really discouraging, right? And so pretty soon, we're just like, we get more and more like this, but humility does not come through navel-gazing, Okay? Humility does not come through endless self-focus. We will get stuck. That is not how we get humility. Humility comes, and Paul tells us right here the secret, through pursuing the interests of others. Humility comes when we pursue, first and foremost, the interests of others. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, that's a given, kind of, we do that naturally, right? I do that without even thinking. Not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Actively looking out for the interests of others, for the glory of God, is the only way to take our self-absorbed gaze off of ourselves and grow in true Christ-like humility. Pursuing the interests of others. Right? Because, because pride can take interesting forms, but it's always self-focused, right? I love in John Piper's excellent book, um, Battling Unbelief, he has a chapter in there on pride, and he makes it so clear how boasting and self-pity are expressions of pride, right? Boasting is pride in the voice of the strong, and self-pity is pride in the voice of the weak. Both are self-focused, right? Humility comes when we lose our precious selves and we pursue the interests of others for the glory of God. C.S. Lewis says, the pleasure of pride is like the pleasure of scratching. If there is an itch, one does want to scratch, but it is much nicer to have neither the itch nor the scratch. As long as we have the itch of self-regard, we shall want the pleasure of self-approval. But the happiest moments are those when we forget our precious selves and have neither, but have everything else instead. 
True joy is when we forget our precious selves and we pour out our lives for the glory of God and the good of those around us. That is, those are the happiest moments. That is true joy. So the problem is pride, right? If the problem is pride that we're looking at expressed in conceit, in competition, in self-seeking, if that is what will keep us from oneness, I want us to go just one little step deeper with that, okay? Like, okay, I see pride. Pride would be at the root of um, this disunity. But one step deeper with this, because I believe that those things are actually merely symptoms of a deeper-seated issue. Okay, Those are symptoms. The rivalry, the selfishness, those things are just symptoms. We say it's pride. But do you know what the root of pride is? It's insecurity. And no, I'm not going into a self-esteem talk. Some of you are like, hold on a minute. I thought you were Insecurity is the root of pride. Why? In my experience, what I see in Scripture is that the real issue we have is an identity problem. The deep-seated issue that we have is an identity problem. It's not a self-esteem problem. It's an identity problem. What do I mean? The next verse, in verse 5, tells us that we need the mind of Christ. Again, he's bringing it back to the mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He tells us we need the mind of Christ. And then he tells us what it is like. In verse 6, he says, Who though he was in the form of God, and that word form is morphe, which means very nature God. He was in his very essence and his very nature God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung onto, a thing to be held white-knuckled onto, right? But instead, it says, he humbled himself, he made himself, excuse me, in verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant or a slave, the word is doulos, the same slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Now, that word form is a different word. It's schema, okay? That is putting on an outward fashion, like a robe. So in very nature, God, Jesus chose to put on flesh like a garment, if you will, okay? He pulled skin on, if you will, and tabernacled among us. Put skin on, he put on flesh like a garment, and he humbled himself, verse nine, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? The highest high, humbling himself, to the lowest low. Why? For us. Anything, no matter how much you have achieved, or who you are, or what you have accomplished, or what gifts you have, or how many things you have going for, for you, no matter how low God calls you to stoop in order to love the people around you, he has stooped low. No one has ever gone from a higher high to a lower low than our Savior has. So no matter how he calls you to humble yourself in a way that is embarrassing or frustrating or humiliating or how he calls you to stoop and lower yourself, he has gone lower. He has made a, a bigger jump, if you will. Whatever strength we need, to lower ourselves that low, he can give us because he has done more. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hanging on a cross, the very one who gave life and breath to those who were crucifying him. For us. And he says, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And what I love about this passage is that it shows us that even though Jesus was fully a son. We could argue no one was more fully a son than Jesus was a son, right? A son of God. And yet he willingly gave up his rights in order to serve those around us. Now why do I highlight this? What does it have to do with our identity? The root of pride is insecurity, which is really just fear. The root of pride is insecurity, which is another word for fear. It's fear. The root of humility is actually confidence. We think humility has to do with like not thinking. You know, the root of humility is confidence. 
which is really just security. Security is the opposite of fear. When we know our identity in Jesus Christ, that we have done nothing to deserve our salvation, that he has called us his children, that he has rescued us out of darkness, and that he has changed us from being orphans and slaves to being children of God, we are secure. When we know our identity in Christ, the gospel message is that God has redeemed us from being slaves and orphans, and he has brought us into the family of God, and we are his children. And the children of God are confident and secure because they got the richest daddy in the world, right? My daddy, yeah, so he's like in control of the world. And he's really rich, right? I had this funny moment with my neighbor. Um, and, you know, we live, I haven't told you anything about our life, but we, um, I don't know, we live in community. And so we have various assorted folks that live with us. And um, we have this old, old house. And, um, and we live really simply. Um, that's just part of our journey was we sold our dream house and kind of changed our lifestyle to be able to give half of our income away. And so we live just kind of plain. But, um, but we also just, we have a lot of freedom, you know. And so we'll, if we want to go do something, we'll go do something. And, and um, my neighbor, who um, they're, they're very well off, um, but always worried about finances in some aspect. And so she, one day she, she came over and she doesn't really know what I do. I mean, she's like, you're always leaving on weekends. Like, what do you do? I'm like, I talk to women. She's like, about what? Like the Bible? She's like, okay, weird. Um, but so she, she came over this one day and she's like, so I kind of think you guys are secretly millionaires. Because <laughs> she's like, you live like kind of simple, but then like you're never worried about money or whatever. And I just kind of left it, you know, it was like, but I thought to myself, we kind of are. You know, I'm like, I have the richest dad in the world. And so basically, we can live on really little, and yet if we have a need, we're like, can you take care of that for us? And he does. Right? We're kind of all millionaires. Right? We have the richest dad in the world. We have a dad who can do anything in the entire world. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's all good. And we're his children. And all throughout scripture, we see he's like, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about what you'll drink. Don't worry about what you'll put on. Don't worry. I'm your father. We can be secure. We don't have to look out for ourselves. We don't have to look out for number one. Right, Romans 8, we see this throughout the New Testament. Galatians 4 talks about this. Romans 8 talks about this. Paul says in Romans 8, 14 to 17, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. The spirit of slavery is fear. When we live like slaves, we live insecure, fearful lives. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, as children of God, by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You've probably seen this if you've worked with orphans at all, right? But the spirit of an orphan is hoarding, right? I got to look out. I got to look out for a number one because I never know if there's going to be enough tomorrow. Right? Many of my friends who have adopted kids, their kids will like hide food in their rooms or like stuff their pockets when they go places, right? I got to look out for number one and I'm going to bite and scrap and take care of myself because no one else is going to take care of me. When we have a spirit of fear, a spirit of being an orphan, that's what we do relationally. I got to look out for number one because nobody else is going to look out for me. So I got to put myself first, and I got to prove myself, and it's self, self. Instead, the spirit of a loved child is, my dad's going to take care of me. So, like, I kind of don't have to worry about that. I don't have to put myself first. I don't have to walk in pride. I can enjoy the freedom of humility because I am a child of God. And my father has promised to take care of me. So I can lose myself in serving you and blessing you because my dad is going to take care of all of my needs. Do you see the difference? Really, the root of pride is insecurity. It is not knowing our identity as loved children of God. That is the problem 
of our minds. We have to let God give us the mind of Christ, which is I am loved, I am saved by grace, I don't have to look out for myself, I can love those around us. And that is what Jesus did. That is the mind of Christ. You know, the other thing about this is that this helps us when we have this new, when we realize the root of pride is insecurity, it helps us be more compassionate toward others that we see walking in pride. Right? If you see someone that's kind of like me first, our tendency is to be like, who do they think they are? But you know what the, the real issue is? There's insecurity. That helps us be compassionate toward them. It helps us go, Lord, help them know that they're loved. Help them know that they don't have to prove themselves. Help them know that they don't have to compete with me or compete with that person. And that helps us to show empathy and compassion and love versus competition. I don't have to be right. I don't have to be first. I don't have to win. Right? We lose our lives to find them. And when we are secure children of God, it frees us up to lay down our lives for one another. Amen. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that we are your children. God, I pray that you would root out fear and insecurity in our hearts, God. I pray that even right now, as we have this quiet moment, that you would put your finger on any areas in our hearts where we are still functioning in fear and insecurity where we still feel like we have to prove ourselves or compare ourselves or look out for ourselves or all of the self things. God, would you put your finger on that and would you apply your healing balm to that wound, God? Would you speak the word by your Holy Spirit that heals that place of insecurity? Would you reveal by the power of your Holy Spirit the love that you have for us as your children. Would you help us to rest in your love so we do not have to prove ourselves to each other, so we do not have to compete, so we do not have to look out for number one, so we don't have to get the last word. Would you free us and make us whole, Father? We are desperately needing your love to make us confident, to make us secure. Give us the mind of your son, Jesus. Change our minds, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. 